Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter for the Good Bible Study. I am going to take up in this audio a discussion of Acts 9 verses 32 through 43 and we'll finish up Acts 9. Our context is this. Previously in chapter 9 of Acts we saw Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, his three years in Arabia, his sojourn in Damascus, his return to Jerusalem, 15 days, and then he is escorted out of town to Tarsus, and we've left him in his hometown of Tarsus. And now we're going to take up the story of Peter. Paul ended up being the quote-unquote apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter is going to be administering to the Jews here. So we've picked the story up in Acts 9, verse 32. As Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. Now, Peter was an apostle at Jerusalem. He was one of the pillar apostles of the church of Jerusalem, and now he's traveling. Apostles, apostles usually did travel. They went around and tried to start other churches, and Peter didn't do a lot of traveling, apparently, too far away from Jerusalem. This is fairly close to Jerusalem, but he was traveling. And he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda, whereas Lydda, it's a town that's two or three miles north of the road that connects Jerusalem and Yapa. Yapa is directly on the coast. It's still there. It's about 38 miles from Jerusalem. Yapa is a suburb of Tel Aviv, now the capital of Israel, and of the modern state of Israel. And Lydda is just north of that road, not far away from Yapa, about 12 miles, according to NIV Study Bible, about 12 miles away from Yapa, so it's not far. Lydda is a place that's famous for Jewish doctors, incidentally. So, who were these saints? How did they end up at Lydda? Here's an interesting speculation by John Gill. They were probably converted by Philip. If you remember in Acts 8, after Philip converted the Ethiopian eunuch down there on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is down in the, in the south, he returned by way of Azotus, which is the old Ashdod, the old Philistine city of Ashdod. He went from that city back on up to Caesarea, which is further to the north of Yapa on the coast. And so that means he could have very well passed through this area where Lydda was and evangelizing because it says in Acts 8.40, Philip appeared in Azotus and he was traveling and evangelizing all the towns until he came to Caesarea and Lydda's a town on the way. So it could be. At any rate, Peter comes down to see these saints and what has happened to Paul. The Paul goes, disappears for about five years, according to Adam Clark. Now, it could be eight years he's disappeared, if you assume that Luke takes the story up before Paul has been in the Arabian desert for three years. Or if, he, if Luke takes the story up with Peter, if it's after the Paul comes out of the desert, then Paul disappears for about five years. So he's up there and is apparently in Tarsus for five years or so. This is all speculation by scholars that I'm quoting here. Clark thinks that Luke takes up the story after Paul left Arabia, which means Peter's going to be working for about five years while Paul's in the dark here. And Jay, But on the other hand, Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that Luke is probably referring to Peter's activity during Paul's sojourn in Arabia, so we could be talking about eight years of activity. And again, these are all estimates. Paul, by the way, doesn't show up again after he, we left him in the last verse, in verse 31 of Acts 9. He shows up again in Acts 11:30, when the poor relief was sent from Antioch to Jerusalem by means of Barnabas and Saul. So at some point in that time, Paul leaves Tarsus. Remember, Barnabas went and found him some, at some point and took him from Tarsus back to Antioch. And so Paul was basically doing most of his early ministry there locally in the church at Antioch. All right, so we go to verse 33 of Acts 9. Then he, referring now back to Peter, found a man named Aeneas. This is in Lydda, 
who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. So I'm sure Aeneas was well known. If you've been paralyzed for eight years, people are going to know who you are and that you haven't walked in eight years. He was probably a Christian because that's what Peter had gone down there to, to do was to visit the believers in verse 32. It says he came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. And by the way, this shows that since Peter came to the believers, he was not necessarily going to start a church. We get the idea that apostles, oftentimes, that was their main job. It was their main job to start churches, but they also went back and encouraged the churches that were already started. Remember on Paul's missionary journey, which he started in Acts 13, he went and started a lot of churches, and on the second journey went and he encouraged them all that he had already started. So encouragement is just as important as establishment, establishing churches. It's real easy to get discouraged in the Christian walk, let's face it. Lots and lots and lots of opposition out there from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Aeneas is a, a Greek guy. He's probably a Hellenistic. Well, either he could have been Greek or maybe a Hellenistic Jew. But at any rate, we go now to verses 34 and 35 in Acts 9. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Notice he didn't say, I, I'm healing you. It's Jesus Christ heals you. He gives glory to where glory is due Get up and make your bed. And immediately he, Aeneas, got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Sharon is a little city nearby. Or it could be the whole plain of Sharon, which was a 50-mile coastal plain from Caesarea in the north down to Yapa in the south approximately, in which case there's a whole lot of people getting saved. Or it could be a city called Sharon. They found the name of a city in the Egyptian papyri. So it's unclear. But at any rate, the Lots of people got saved, says all who lived in Lydda and Sharon. And again, that word all does not mean each and every one. That would be nice, but all in the Greek, you, it, it can also mean many. It's a very common use of the word all to mean just a whole heap of. It doesn't mean each and every last one, literally. You could look that up in a lexicon. That word comes up in a lot of theological controversies. So I've gotten tired of looking it up. I've almost got it memorized. Yes, it can mean, it doesn't mean, necessarily mean each and every one. Now, why did Peter tell Aeneas to get up and make your bed? When he says get up, Peter is telling Aeneas to prove his healing. He's telling Aeneas to get up in order to prove his healing so that the people could see it. And I would also, that's according to John Gill, I would also add that when you get healed and when God does something for you, you need to walk in it. You need to say, yes, I believe what you've done for me. And I will literally walk in it in this case, but in, in general, um, you, if God says that he's healed a relationship, you need to walk in it and prove to you and everybody else that you're getting along with the person you weren't getting along with before, before, and so forth. And notice that Peter says, I want you to make your bed. Why would that little detail be in there? Because paralyzed people don't make beds. This is an obvious healing. And this is something I point out all the way through the book of Acts. Whenever a miracle is done, it is always credible, and the proof is always right there, unlike a lot of charismatic miracles where you can't prove them. And people like John MacArthur or secular people who don't believe in Christ and don't certainly don't believe in healing and cessationists like John MacArthur just point their finger at it and say, you can't prove it, therefore it didn't happen. Well, in the miracles in the New Testament, they were done where you could prove it. Well, there's no doubt about it. Everybody knew this man. He'd been paralyzed for eight years. Jesus operated this way himself, as John Gill points out, like at the pool of Bethesda, John chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. 
He also told, said the same thing to the man let down through the roof, if you recall, in the Capernaum ministry. Get up. Take it up and walk. Because when you do that, it proves that you're healed because paralyzed people don't pick up their mats and walk. Now, notice all these people turning to the Lord, and I've emphasized this over and over through the book of Acts. Whenever a miracle is done, you don't have to go too far before Luke says it. And see how many people got saved. Because miracles are a signpost that point to, to heaven. This is a credible miracle. It is a miracle that cannot be denied by the witnesses who saw it. And that's why the opponents of, of Christianity, the opponents of Jesus, they never took the tack of those miracles didn't happen. They couldn't. Too many witnesses. We go to Acts 9, verse 36. In Yapa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. Now remember, Yapa is 12 miles away from uh, Lydda. Joppa is on the coast. In Yapa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. And God bless women like this. They don't get enough credit. Well, not just women, but anybody that does good works and acts of charity. They don't seem to get enough credit. I don't know. I say that a lot of people respect it. That's really not true. People respect people who have an open heart, a generous heart, and do acts of charity. But let's put it this way. When it comes to who's the greatest teacher, who's got the biggest church, who's got how many people coming to it, and then they got some woman in the church that's doing stuff that nobody sees. I remember my grandmother, a devout Christian, she would go down to a poor black area in my hometown, and for years she did this on Christmas. There were some real poor families there. The kids never had a Christmas present, and she was wrapping up little presents and putting and taking them down there and giving them to these little black kids, and nobody ever knew it. I didn't know it. It just happened to come out one time in conversation. I think she she was so old she'd quit doing it by the time it came out in conversation. But that's the sort of thing, folks, that that really, really, really impresses Christians. I'll give you kind of a counterexample. It was my masseuse I had in um, China, Shantou, China, who I was trying to witness to, and she would said that there was a Christian that lived in her neighborhood, and she was a traditional country girl, high school educated in a very, very traditional Chinese village, and she would tell me stories. I got a chance to look in to see what it was like in old China right there, listen to her talk, and she said that she was not interested in being a Christian because there was a Christian in her village there, Tuopu it was called, a Christian there who had not taken care of his parents, and there's nothing worse than for a traditional Chinese person not take care of your parents. And she later became converted, and she said, because because I asked her, I said, pray, can you at least pray that if Jesus is real, he'll reveal himself to you? And she said she would. A year later, she just happens to mention that she was a Christian. I almost fell off the table. I said, well, when did this happen? And how did it happen? She said, because all of her customers, she kept getting customers, and they were all Christians, and they were so kind and so nice to her. So, yeah, doing good works, acts of charity, it, it's a powerful thing. And so this Tabitha was like that. Tabitha's of her, her Syriac name, and Tabitha means doe, as in a female deer in Syriac. And it probably comes from, and, and Dorcas means doe in Greek. Dorcas is a Greek name. It must be in China. We had English names and Chinese names to handle the two languages. And she probably, the name probably referred to the fact that her parents thought that she had eyes of a doe, which are very kind and gentle. That's why you can't shoot them during, unless it's doe season, I guess. But no, you you have to, uh, does are, they just evoke a, a, a feeling of kindness and gentleness and mercy, which of course is the way Tabitha actually was. And maybe her parents predicted the way she would turn out. But anyway, that was her name. 
And we go to verse 37. In those days she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. That was probably the Christians there in Yapa. And washing was something that was done in preparation for burial. It was common for both Jews and Greeks. The Jews had a specific ceremony for it. They called it the quote-unquote purification of the dead, according to the NIV, NIV Study Bible. Now, why does Peter mention, uh, Luke mention this? Well, maybe it's an incidental detail, but it could be because Luke is trying to show, hey, she's dead. She wasn't just resuscitated when Peter prayed for her. She was dead because you don't wash live people. If you're washing her, she's dead. So anyway, whether Luke meant it or not, that detail proves that Dorcas was dead. Now, if a burial was delayed, if you didn't bury a body immediately, it was customary to lay the body in an upper room, as the NIV Study Bible says. The NIV Study Bible says in Jerusalem the body had to be buried within one day, but outside of Jerusalem you got three days before you had to bury the body. I don't know how in the world the body lasted that long. I guess the spices and all they used in ball might preserve it a little bit. But this was during that three-day period that Tabitha was up there in the upper room. Now, Lightfoot, the famous Puritan commentator, not Puritan, I'm sorry, the famous Protestant commentator, uh, Westminster Divine, says this, that the saints probably met in that upper room for worship, and they might have put the body up there in hopes that Peter might raise it. Now, that's a speculation. The speculation is they put the body up there so Peter might raise it, and that when he did, everyone could see it. So he, they, she was up there on display for Peter to come raise the Dorcas from the dead. I don't know if that's true or not. But at any rate, Dorcas is upstairs in the upper room. We go to verse 38 in Acts chapter 9. Since Lydda was near Joppa, 12 miles away, as I've said, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who begged him, Don't delay in coming with us. First question. Why didn't the disciples just pray for Tabitha's resurrection themselves? Well, now remember, nobody had done a resurrection before. Uh, no, Jesus had, but no Christian, let's put it this way, no Christian had done a resurrection before. That was probably outside their pay grade, off their radar scope. Maybe they were thinking that since Peter's a disciple, he could do that. But maybe not. Maybe he was just, maybe when they sent the disciples to get Peter, maybe Tabitha had not died yet, and they were hoping he would come and pray because there been lots of healings. So they might have thought that. But at any rate, they went to get Peter, and they said, don't delay. Well, if they thought that she was still alive, if, they, if Tabitha was still alive when they left to get Peter, don't delay means come get her before she dies. Come pray for her for, her, for her healing before she dies. Or if they're praying, asking Peter to come raise her from the dead is don't delay because we've got to bury her, bury her within three days. By the way, this idea that only that Peter needed to come raise uh, Tabitha and the disciples couldn't do it, this has been used. This perhaps could be wrongly used as an argument that only apostles can do miracles. So here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. This fact that the disciples didn't raise Tabitha themselves, referring to that, quote, showing that the disciples generally did not possess miraculous gift. Jameson Fawcett and Brown is quoting a Protestant commentator named Bengal. Well, first of all, notice that Jameson Fawcett and Brown says disciples generally did not possess miraculous gifts, which I don't believe. Note that Ananias successfully prayed for the miracle of, in the healing of Paul's blindness in, Acts, in this very chapter in Acts 9. That was a miracle, and Ananias wasn't an apostle. So I think that's too extreme to say that disciples can't do miracles. However... This was a big miracle. This is raising somebody from the dead, and that might be why they wanted the apostle there, figuring the apostle had more faith than they did. Now, let's again look at why the disciples said don't delay in coming to us. 
the two men who came to get Peter. First option, they were saying, come, give consolation to the church. NIV Study Bible mentions that as an option, and so does John Gill. Maybe. I don't think so. NIV Study Bible says another option is, come work the miracle. Adam Clark says, no, that's not what it is. They didn't expect, now when I say the miracle, I mean the resurrection miracle. Option number two, come work the resurrection miracle. Adam Clark says, no, it's not likely they were going to have any expectation of a resurrection had never been done before. None of the apostles had ever raised anybody or anybody else had ever raised anybody. God hadn't raised Stephen, the famous Christian martyr. Why would he raise Dorcas? So they're not asking Peter to come raise Tabitha from the dead, Dorcas from the dead. That's what, not where they were coming. That's option number two, which is, well, option number two is that they, that they did go get Peter to raise Dorcas from the dead, but there's reasons to say that that option might not be true. Third option, they went to get Peter to cure Tabitha before she died. They took out while she was sick and said, come heal her. And if, I, if you ask me, that might be it. I'm not really sure why. But at any rate, they went to get Peter, and he, and he came, Acts 9, verse 39. So Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, this is in Joppa now, he's leaving from Lydda to Joppa. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs, and all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Why were they showing Peter the robes and the clothes? As evidence of her piety, of her good works. She probably made those robes and clothes for widows, for people who didn't have any clothes. Now, all these widows are probably those who had been ministered to by Dorcas. It could be an official order in the church, you know, like put widows on the list, Paul told Timothy. Don't put them on the list unless they're 60 years old and, and that kind of thing. So it could be an official order, or it could just be widows in general. Uh, John Gill has an interesting point. It doesn't say so here in our text, but some manuscripts right here at verse 39 mention that Dorcas had made the clothing for the widows. So there's some manuscript evidence that Dorcas had done had made all these robes and clothes for the widows. But even without the manuscript evidence, it's logical. That's why they're weeping and showing him the robes and, robes and clothes, because Dorcas had done it for them, and they were sad because she had left, because she had died. They were trying to show Dorcas's diligence, industry, humility, and beneficence. Now, John Gill asked a question here. Were these widows trying to induce Peter to raise her from the dead? Or did Peter just see Dorcas and moved by the Holy Spirit and said, I'm going to raise her from the dead? Did the widows have him, show, were the widows showing Peter all those clothes and, 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 and bragging on Dorcas's great reputation? Were they doing that, try, trying to say, come on, Peter, come on in here and raise her from the dead? I find that hard to believe. Nobody had ever been raised before by Christians. Why would they expect Peter to do it? This is the first time. Well, we don't know. But anyway, we go to verse 40. Of Acts 9, then Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turning toward the body, and, turn, and turning toward the body said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and saw Peter and sat up. Now, Peter had been with Jesus three times when Jesus raised somebody from the dead, as the NIV Study Bible points out. He was there when Jesus raised Jairus, the synagogue's ruler's daughter, in Matthew 9:25. He was there when Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son, in Luke 7:11 through 15. He was there when Jesus raised Lazarus of Bethany, in John 11:43 through 44. Three famous resurrections. And so he knew that with the power of Jesus, people could get raised from the dead. I saw a when I was in China. I was right in Liaoning Province, right on the edge of the North Korean border. I was way out in the countryside. And this woman, and I remember her well because she was born in the same, uh, the same month that I was. I don't think it was the same day, but it was the same month. So she was my age. And she had a little 
12-year-old girl there who had died. They had taken her to the hospital in Liaoning, and they had her all hooked up to the machines, and the, it goes beep, you know, flatlined. And she was gone, and they started praying. And she's just simple country people. And she said that she came back to life. And you say, well, you know, maybe, maybe so. Well, I don't know. She, The people in the village knew this girl. They knew the reputation of the woman, and... She went walking through the villages, and I forgot how many dozens of churches got sprang up. She later turned them over to this guy who, who had brought us, an apostle guy, missionary guy, apostle. And he um, took us out there in that countryside because this woman was kind of well-known because of, because of that. And, and it just kills me, you know, because she's sitting there, not an ounce of pride in her. And, in fact, this incredible humility, she, she said, I wish I could have done more. And I'm thinking, please. Wish you could have done more. How many churches did you get started here? So, um, but that's just the way they are, you know. They don't think there's anything unusual about somebody getting raised from the dead. Well, what, a, raise, a resurrection from the dead, what it means is a spirit leaves heaven and comes back into the body. And that sounds incredible because we have such a death. It's such a dark door to us. It's such an incredible barrier. But I've been watching a lot of near-death experience videos, and after a while, it gets to be, well, it's really just sort of like a transition from one state to the next. And how many times Jesus tells people to come back into their bodies after you watch enough of these things happens all the time. So it wouldn't surprise me if it happened back then in ancient times, too. It just, it just didn't have the medical machinery to, to keep people's bodies long, alive long enough to have that happen where the Spirit would come back into their body. So... What I'm saying is I don't have any trouble believing this. Peter prayed, and the tablets of the Spirit came, and she came back to life. Now, why did Peter send everybody out of the room? Well, it could be that he wanted to not be distracted. He wanted to seek the will of God in fervent prayer, and I, I think that's probably it. Adam Clark says so. Clark says he didn't know whether God was going to raise her or not, so he wanted to pray. God, are you going to raise her? I, if that's true, and I don't have any doubt that that's true, I don't, you know, if so, then the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it folks, the faith altars, would say he didn't have faith. They would say, oh, no, he knew it. He went in there and knew that, that Tabitha was going to be risen from the dead. I don't believe that. I remember my experience I had. I prayed for a guy. He was dying in a hospital in Shantou, China. And I had told the, the daughter of this man that if she would believe, if she would accept Christ, that if God raised up her her father that would she would accept christ and i didn't say that it was going to happen because i didn't know i guess my faith is not big enough well the man was raised again he 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 wasn't dead but he was on life support and been in a coma for a long time and the doctors were just getting ready to pack him up and put him in a coffin and the daughter knew he was just about toast he's still living i was eight or nine years eight years ago maybe eight nine he's still living Unfortunately, he didn't get saved, but the daughter did. But my point is, is I didn't know he was going to come up or not. I just, I just said, well, God, you know, you can do it, do it, if if you so desire, you know. And so anyway, well, if Peter knew or not, I don't think he did, but I, I do know he he knew God and he knew the power of God. He'd seen Jesus raise three people from the dead before. You know, Elisha did the same thing about getting everybody out so he could concentrate on prayer. This is in First Kings fourth. Second Kings 4.33. So he, Elisha, went in, closed the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. This is when he was praying for the widow's son. He just got everybody out so he could pray by himself. Now, when Dorcas opened her eyes, she'd come back to life. And the first question you think is, well, what was it like while you were gone? she just left heaven. What did she think about coming back into this miserable veil of tears? Well, 
this is what Adam Clark says. Now, remember, he, Clark is writing in the 1800s that, well, she saw all that beautiful stuff. Here's, here's op, one option that Clark brings up that Dorcas might have felt. She saw all that beautiful stuff in heaven, and now she's back here in this miserable world. She's just going to have to trust the will of God. She'll get there when her time comes to go back again. Another option Clark brings up is that God drew a veil over all that she had seen in heaven so she couldn't remember it, so she wouldn't feel like she was cheated by having to leave paradise. Well, that was in the 1800s. I think with all the post-death testimonies that people that are bound today, I don't think that God drew a veil over Dorcas's mind and made her forget everything she'd seen. I think because most of these post-death people, they remember exactly what they saw, and they remember it so well that it changes their life for the rest of their life, and it's so vivid they never forget it. But Adam Clark didn't have that advantage of those kind of testimonies. So we go to Acts 9, verse 41. He, that's Peter, gave her, Tabitha, his hand and helped her stand up. Then he called the saints and widows and presented her alive again. These are probably the widows that Dorcas had been pre- present, had been helping with making the clothes and so forth. And that's why Luke breaks out that group for special mention here, in addition to the, the, the other saints. Presented her alive. That's probably a pretty dramatic presentation. He goes into the room, shuts the door. Dorcas is lying there dead. He opens the door and says, here she is, folks, your sister Dorcas. Again, the widows there might not have been widows ministered to by Dorcas. They might have been the official order of widows in a church, as they had back then, take, to take care of them. It's not clear. I suspect it was the widows that Dorcas had helped. Acts 9.42, this became known throughout Yapa, and many believed in the Lord. And remember, as I said, all the way through Acts, you see a miracle, and Luke immediately records, hey, people believed because of that miracle. It is a common, common pattern. Miracles are signposts that lead us to heaven. We need evangelism today. We need miracles today. I don't care what John MacArthur says and Phil Johnson say and Justin Peters say and and Todd Friel say. I don't care what they say. We need miracles today because the more miracles there are, more credible miracles, more people are going to believe. That's just the way it is. I actually ran into somebody in China who had been to Africa. I think it was Africa to a Reinhold Bonnke, it was Africa, a Reinhold Bonnke evangelistic meeting. He's a guy that, that that does a lot of miracles in his, but he ties it in with evangelism. And this person, this was in China, this person had seen the miracle and said, wow, I don't know if it was personally on that person's body or it was somebody else that, that, that she knew, but you got to say, or he knew, I can't remember whether it was a he or she, but I remember thinking, yeah, there you go. There's somebody that got saved. Because of a miracle, a miracle that was done in conjunction with a salvation gospel message. This many believed in the Lord. As I said, miracles are often associated with conversions. How about in John 12:11? Because he, Lazarus, was the reason many of the Jews were deserting, deserting them, deserting the chief priest, and believing in Jesus. Lazarus's resurrection caused a lot of hard-nosed, rabbinic, anti-Christian, anti-Jesus priest big shot Jews to believe in the Lord because it's sort of hard to argue against a big miracle like that. We go to verse 43 in Acts chapter 9. And Peter stayed on many days in Yapa with Simon, a leather tanner unclean because of their occupation. Tanners had to use dead animals to make their leather, to tan the leather and create the leather goods that they made. And when you touch a dead animal, according to Jewish law, you automatically become Levitically unclean. That's what it means here, Levitically unclean, not dirty in the hygienic sense. And Tanner, this Tanner had his house near the sea. 
Why did he have it near the sea? We know that from Acts 10.6. Simon a Tanner, whose house is by the sea, it says, was you have to get that nasty smelling stuff outside of town. People are not going to put up with it. So he was by the sea. So the smell would stay away from the people in town. Now, Peter stayed there. Now, why did we? Why is it that Luke mentions the fact that where Peter was staying, the guy who owned the house was a leather tanner unclean because of his occupation? Why would Luke say that? Because it shows that Peter, the pillar apostle of the Jer- Jerusalem church, Peter was willing to overcome Jewish prejudices and go to an unclean person. He is getting ready to shed his prejudices against Gentiles, as we see in the next chapter when he goes up to Cornelius' house, the Roman centurion. It shows, as then I've studied Bible and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, that Peter is willing to reject Jewish prejudice against Gentiles, even though I think Simon was probably Jewish. But it shows that if you're willing to associate with an unclean Jew, you're willing to associate with an unclean Gentile, too. Now, of course, Peter still had to be convinced of it with that vision of the the dirty animals, the unclean animals coming down from the sky and the sheep. That still had to happen. But nonetheless, he was getting ready, staying in this unclean tanner's house. We'll take that up, the story of the conversion of the Gentiles and Cornelius' house in Caesarea and the falling of the Holy Spirit upon them. We'll take that up in the next chapter as we take up chapter 10. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.